Today is uh, September 10th, 2015, and it's time for our Neuroscientist Talk Shop, University of Texas at San Antonio's podcast on neuroscience research. Today our guest, guest is uh, James Mack Shine. Uh, he is C.J. Martin Fellow of the NHMRC, that's the National Health and Medical Research Council of Australia, in the Department of Psychology at Stanford University. Hi, Matt. Hi, Charlie. How are you doing? Great, thanks. So around the table, uh, Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. And Nicole Vachat. Hi. So, uh, oh, and I should say, by the way, that uh, Matt uh, is working with Russell Poldrack, who is an alumnus of this podcast from March 2015. So you might want to go back and listen to that podcast, too. So Mac is interested in brain dynamics at the macroscopic level, that is, at the level of anatomically defined structures like the kinds we might study in an anatomy class. And uh, he has used functional MRI to visualize functional connectivity between those structures, which, as I understand it, is sort of a way of seeing, over time, the shifting alliances between brain regions and uh, during behavior and during cognitive events. And he also has a long-time interest in Parkinson's disease and has done some fascinating studies of brain activity during Parkinson's disease, which I hope he'll say something about. So, we're, uh, Mac, we're still learning uh, new symptoms of Parkinson's disease. The disease has been described almost a hundred years ago. How come James Parkinson didn't get all the symptoms right from the beginning. How could we still be finding new symptoms out of these Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Um, I think these symptoms have long been known about in these, uh, in these people with Parkinson's, but often labeled as something else. So you might find someone with Parkinson's that has depression, but you won't think that it's due to the same pathology as Parkinson's. You'll think it's due to a separate issue with some depressive-causing illness. And so it's only been recently when we've been able to collect a lot of data from a lot of different centers and really ask these questions, uh, combining them with brain imaging, to actually try and sort of narrow down and work out how many different symptoms there are, whether there are symptom clusters, um, whether they have different responses to treatments like deep, deep brain stimulation or medication, and just sort of really clarify that, that, um, that field a little bit more. Could you give us kind of a rundown of what we think now are the clusters of Sure, sure. So it, there's a few different ways of going about this, but the way that I'm most familiar with is to collect data from, say, 500 subjects in a, in a clinic that you see with Parkinson's, many very different symptoms. You try and uh, find all of those different symptoms using things like questionnaires, um, clinical, uh, clinical interview, uh, brain imaging. And then you try and cluster the, the data at that higher level to see whether or not there are symptom clusters that go together. And what we generally tend to see are sort of four major clusters that fall out. There are two small clusters. One is a, a rapid onset Parkinson's that uh, happens usually quite early and goes fairly quickly. Um, you also see a, a youth onset Parkinson's, which happens even earlier, even as early as the 30s, uh, but has a slower progression. Um, and then the two major categories uh, that fall out, one of them is defined by tremor, so these people have this sort of classical resting tremor at 5 to 7 hertz, uh, but really no other symptoms to speak of, uh, 
you then see another cluster, which we would call the akinetic rigid cluster, and they tend to have things like bradykinesia, freezing of gait, visual hallucinations, depression, cognitive dysfunction, sleep disorder, even constipation. Um, and they're the people that we're really trying to focus our efforts on to try and understand ways that we can actually make a difference in their symptoms. So why are those, why are they both uh, called Parkinson's? Uh, I think that's a, a really great question. I think it's, it's been a historical uh, a diagnostic category where people have found things like bradykinesia and the tremor and the stiffness and put them all into the same category. Whereas now that we actually have a sort of more bird's eye view, we can actually see that there are clusters that move together. So are there other disorders that have similar symptomologies that are not Parkinson's, or is it always the rigidity and the tremors are always a, considered a Parkinsonian symptom, uh, disorder? There are definitely many more, and um, neurologists uh, are very good at classifying all these different disorders and different subtypes of different disorders. Um, it's definitely a little bit out of my area now that I've been out of clinical re uh, medicine for about five years, but there are, there are things like multiple symptoms atrophy that have Parkinson's symptoms, um, but also all, um, associated autonomic dysfunction, like with blood pressure. Um, you might have another um, so syndrome like a progressive supranuclear palsy, which is um, dysfunction uh, within the brainstem that causes predominantly freezing of gait, but no other, no other real symptoms to speak of. Uh, and there are many other, many other varied symptoms on that way. So in the um, world of, of diagnosing cognitive disorders, the new DSM, if you're probably familiar with, has, has changed the way that they classify disorders rather than trying to group them based on Parkinson's or, or you know, particular um, disorders. They, they are grouping them based on symptomology, sy yeah. symptoms. Do you think that Parkinson's might fall into that um, historical problem of labeling the disorder? Yeah, so you're speaking about the, the RDOC sort of research domain criteria. Um, so the idea here is that um, rather than, say, taking something like schizophrenia, which has many and very different instantiations, and comparing it to something like bipolar disorder, which, you know, maybe has lots of other heterogeneity, you say, are there two people in those two clusters that are actually more like each other than everyone else in their own right. clusters? Yeah. So there might be a bipolar person that has hallucinations and a schizophrenic hallucination. Um, I certainly think that's the way we're pushing things in Parkinson's. We're trying to say, let's find out if you get the symptom, and then let's look at that symptom under the microscope and work out what's causing that symptom in its many different instantiations. So a freezing of gait, and, and um, a question I'm very interested in, a disorder I'm trying to, very interested in trying to understand, which is where as someone's walking along, all of a sudden their feet stop, basically it feels as if they're stuck to the ground. Well, there's many different ways that that can be brought on. It can be brought on by thinking while you're walking, it can be brought on by walking through a narrow doorway, it can be brought on by being anxious. And so one of the things we're trying to do now is bring in as many people with freedom as we can and then work out, do the triggers all hit every single person in the same way? Or are there different phenotypes of, of person with freezing that we can potentially then narrow down the treatment plans and really focus down on the thing that's causing the problem? So one of the things that seems potentially great about your use of functional imaging is that all these different symptoms might arise through different kinds of network interactions and that you could identify them and then you could try to cluster the symptoms according to brain networks rather than it's just according to phenomenology of the of symptoms that are seen in a clinic or something like that. Is, there, is that the way it's going to work out? Uh, I hadn't really given too much thought to that idea, but it's a really, really great idea. Sort of almost um, let the brain imaging speak for itself and let the, the person's sort of recollection of their symptoms um, 
allow you to do the clustering. Um, it's something that I think we would love to move towards, uh, but I think we're still trying to work out the kinks of what we can and can't tell from functional imaging uh, to be able to be that confident. Could you say something about what functional connectivity is? It's a great term. It sounds like something everybody should know what it is. <laughs> yeah. But until you, but it's really a technical term that describes a particular thing you, that you do at the day. Yes, and it's not particularly functional. It's not particularly connective either. It's <laughs> one of those tricky terms, buzz phrases. So this, uh, this idea came out of um, imaging back in, uh, I think it was the 90s. A gentleman named Barrett Biswall was looking at motor cortex and very interested in, in what the motor cortex was doing while someone just lay resting in a scanner. So we were collecting what we would call the bold signal, which we think is indirectly related to neural activity, um, while someone was doing whatever they chose. So we call this resting state, but in effect they may not be resting, they could be thinking or worrying or trying to hold their bladder um, the whole time. The idea is more that we're not constraining their, their behavior in any way. And so what uh, this gentleman did was he placed, he took this, uh, this scan over time and he looked at the activity uh, signal in the motor cortex on the left hemisphere and he asked, of all the other voxels in the brain, a voxel is just a small little, uh, almost like a volumetric pixel that we use to look at brain activity over time. He asked, what other voxels are changing like that voxel in the left motor cortex? And it was one of those great sort of scientific moments where he didn't really expect much but got a really cool answer, which is that the other motor cortex was actually doing something very much like the left motor cortex. And it turns out that if you place what we would call a seed region in lots of different parts of the brain, there are these very interesting sort of spatially distributed what we would call networks, another tricky term, but I guess sort of conglomerations of, of sort of brain regions that are sort of moving similarly over time. Um, so uh, what we then try and do is to try and track those changes and see if the changes in the activity of, say, one big um, network and another big network can actually explain some dysfunction in Parkinson's. And so to give the example of freezing of gait, um, one of the things that we've, we've found quite consistently is that neural uh, networks that would normally control things like cognition, uh, something like holding something online in memory or um, trying to plan ahead, uh, lose their connectivity with the striatum uh, and striatal structures. And so here what we mean, what we mean by connectivity is a ch uh, covariance over time. So what we're trying to say is do two brain regions or networks have a similar pattern of activity over time or a dissimilar pattern of activity? And this is where the term connectivity becomes tricky because people would love to believe that there's some communication pathway opened up between those regions and that's certainly a sort of inference that they're making themselves but at least it's a way of trying to constrain down a potential way that they could be communicating through that path. Can you tell anything about the directionality of the communication from that? No, and um, different, so I think that that's a, it's a really tricky thing to, to get at. Um, my, my feeling at the moment is that we're not really ready to infer directionality from these kinds of uh, techniques. There are some groups around the world that feel they have the techniques to do this stuff, and I think you should totally go and read those if you're interested. Um, but the idea here is that you want to be able to track something causally over time. Something happened at time point one, and then this other thing happened at time point two. Was that cool? was time point two caused by time point one? So it sounds like such a simple thing when you put it like that, but it's actually incredibly complicated to infer causality in anything. Um, uh, you know, I think there's a there's a um, there's a lot of different variables that can go into understanding those relationships. Um, the brain, 
uh, and particularly the level that we look at it in, with you know the, the sort of brain level with uh, functional MRI is even more problematic uh, because we're actually measuring uh, a signal that we think relates to blood flow and blood flow could be different in different parts of the brain. They can have different relationships to different neurons in different parts of the brain. So as soon as you try and take one step away and assume it was one from coming from the other, you could imagine a scenario where there was activity driven from point one to point two, but because of a sluggish bulb response in point one, point one's bulb response would come up after point two. And so you never want to be making that sort of inference, I think. Is there a time issue too? Because it seems like it maybe takes 20 milliseconds for information to go from point one to point two, but the frame rate for functional MRI is way slower than that. So you're basically looking at correlations over time scales that are really long compared to communication times. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine too, Cynthia. I wanted to ask you because, uh, as somebody that uses ERPs, you mentioned you mentioned EEG yeah. uh, that you also work with, um, and we usually talk about time scales in that technology because we're working on the order of milliseconds and approximating how the brain is actually talking to each other in different regions. Um, of course, we don't know what the regions are, so so um, this is always the problem. When, when it was interesting to me to hear you talking about time scales with fMRI because usually people steer away from talking about time with fMRI and, how, and which comes first sort of in, in your analysis. So it's, it's interesting to hear that. And I'm wondering how, what that time scale is, like how close are you getting to? Yeah, look, it's a definitely a great question. Um, so our time scale is much, much slower than anything we can get at with an electrophysiological recording. Um, we tend to collect an entire brain's signal within something on the order of two seconds, being about the sort of average amount of time that we would use. Some fancy physics um, uh, work has, been, has gone into actually collecting more data. So you can collect effectively sort of three um, brain patterns within the, sort of one of those uh, two-second blocks. So you can get closer down to something like uh, sort of one hertz frequency, a little bit lower. Um, so it's, I know, and that's way, way slower than what something we would but get. But it's nice on the behavioral time scale because behavior takes place on time scales like that. At least a lot of behavior does. There's definitely in Parkinson's patients who don't do anything too fast. And also, the, the measurement that we're making is not at the neural level, so we don't need to be able to ask a question of whether region A and B talk together in this little 10 microsecond block or that 10 microsecond block. Because if they both talk together, they'll both theoretically ask for some blood flow and they'll both go up together, and that will all be washed over time. So even if we get a measurement of that slowly, we'll hopefully be able to make some inference about that. But I guess this, this sort of raises, I think, the sort of maybe the $64 billion question for neuroscience now, which is how do we marry these things that we're finding up at this sort of broad level of big clusters of brain activity talking together and electrophysiological recordings of interneurons precisely timing the activity of, of neurons in you know, specific layers of the, of the brain. I don't know if any of you have a good feeling about how we can let's break say, down these let's barriers. Let's say we could. Uh, I know I don't, but <laughs> let's say we could. Then um, if you could... Uh, do what you do at any frame rate you wanted to. Well, how would that change things? Is it really something important that we should want right now, or is it something that we just want because we want better, faster, bigger, everything? <laughs> um, I don't know how to answer that particularly well. I think the more you can sample a signal, the better you're going to be able to estimate its changes. So no doubt it would be better to get higher resolution. There might be something inherent about the bulb signal that just because it moves so slow, we're never going to be able to get much more than a slow approximation of change. Um, 
Interestingly, there's some work in electrocorticography, which is where you place an electrode um, sort of grid on the scalp, uh, sorry, on the, um, the cortical surface of someone who's undergoing surgery. Um, and there are signals within the electrocorticograph, uh, namely the, the envelope of the activity of the high gamma oscillations, that actually correlates really, really nicely with the bold response. So it's, sort of, it's not the sort of small little changes in gamma, it's the uh, sort of power in gamma as it changes over time, as I understand it. And they show very similar patterns. If you measure bold correlations between different regions, they show very similar responses at rest than the ones you'll see in ECOG. So I guess there's some hope uh, that we're going to be able to measure some function, functionally relevant activity that we can do it non-invasively. So if, I, if we look at that envelope, uh, in, is in uh, electrocorticogram, what's the... How fast do we need to sample that in order to reproduce it correctly? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. If that's the, the thing that we're interested in. Yeah. I guess one approach would be to just try to understand the cellular mechanism of the bold response. So I, I kind of understand a little bit about what determines blood flow in some organs, but I don't know a lot about what determines the blood flow in the brain, where it's not just simply uh, autonomically controlled matter, I think. There's local control of blood flow, otherwise this wouldn't work at all. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So, but that's just, that's not something we really know too much about yet. I, I certainly don't, yes. Um, I think there are people working on coming at it from the other way of taking things like optogenetic uh, um, uh, studies and trying to drive firing in different neuronal populations and seeing how that relates to bold when they simultaneously collect it. Um, but it's tricky, I think, to kind of really be confident what we're measuring. So from my perspective, the thing that is hardest about functional MRI is that it can't see those oscillations. So I think there are important things, and I don't know if this is true, but it seems likely to me, reading just from reading and from my own work, that there's important information embedded in oscillations that are happening faster than one hertz in the brain. And that, but if we can get the envelope of those and know that that's what we're seeing, maybe we'd be okay. But um, if we could actually see those things happening, but do you think how's that? What are the chances? <laughs> <laughs> the given the bold signals intrinsic dynamics, which are on the order of what seconds? Six seconds. Six, six seconds. Yeah, five six seconds. Five. Yeah, to peak bold response. Yeah. So that's really a filter that can't be overcome. Well, people have have tried to overcome it with this. Um, um, uh, event-related bolt signal, right? So mm -hmm. you're trying to basically create jitter in the signal oh, so that you can you can find overlapping onsets uh -huh. and onsets. On each trial, you'd sample it at a different right at a different time. time. And um, so so that's kind of what I was getting at with your data. You you seem to have managed to talk about time with your data. Mm -hmm. And I was just um, it wasn't a criticism. It was more of a it was more oh, of a, sure. not not your my technique is better than your technique, but. <laughs> Yeah. No, the question was, how do you do it? Like, how are you getting a time? Because I noticed in, in some of your data that you're presenting, um, you had time, but I but I didn't want to interrupt you for that. What is oh, time sure. scale? <laughs> it's certainly yeah, it's certainly still slow. I think like all fMRI, we re we rely on averaging, um, and it's something like an ERP where we try and take a series of events and line them up together, and then see if there's some consistent change. 
hoping that we've measured different parts of the bold response, as you, as you said. I think the other key thing that is important for us is that we're not attempting to measure the peak bold response. We're just measure, attempting to measure changes in the bold response. And so the bold response peaks at six seconds, but it's changing after you know a second or two um, and increasing. And, and so the hope is that we're going to be able to uh, leverage those small changes and see if they change together or separately to actually kind of answer some of these questions. Mm -hmm. But you know, I really, I really have you know over time come to uh, view bold as a, as a chance to non-invasively get into the brain at a brain level and ask brain really interesting questions, which then create new hypotheses that can be tested in other um, in other uh, technologies that may have their own limitations, like I love ECOG, but you need to have your brain open, uh, yeah. and you need to, you know, you can only get a small patch of the cortex. So, you know, if we can come up with ideas that we, we can then say, okay, we guess that this region is going to talk to this region in this envelope, and we go and test it, and it doesn't happen, all right, our hypothesis was wrong, let's go back to the, you know, drawing board and find a new hypothesis. And I think... You know, bold is great in the sense that we can create and constrain hypotheses, not that we can have the definitive answer of this cell and this cell oscillated at this frequency, which I agree is, you know, likely very fundamentally important for how brain regions actually communicate. I had a, a question um, about, um, related to the technique and, I mean, using fMRI, uh, all imaging techniques, neuro, human neuroimaging techniques are super sensitive to movement. And when you're working with a population that can't stop moving, yeah. how, do, how do you how do you work with it? I mean, it's well, going to be a lot of data loss. And it's worse than that, we actually ask people to move in Australia as well. Uh -huh. So we had this was uh, a good part of the early chunk of my PhD trying to work out how to do this. Um, and so, yes, head motion is hugely important and hugely a big problem. Um, we try our best to control for it. We can do it proactively. You can measure the motion of the head as someone's lying in the scanner and correct the frame as you go. That's tricky to do, but it's done. In some cases, we didn't, we didn't go down that route. Um, there are lots of different ways to try and control for the head motion effects afterwards. They tend to be linear effects, and some of the trickier issues come from nonlinear, so knock-on effects of changing the magnetic field and having some effect that you can't measure, effect, you know, um, information collected down the line. But there are, so the ways to do things like that would be to, you know, realign all of the data into the right um, space and then uh, regress out the signals of movement. And hopefully, it, you, what you're really hoping for there is that nothing that you did in your experiment was like strongly correlated with motion. So the worst case scenario is I have you lying still and I get you to do a task by touching a button. But every time you touch the button, you move your head as well. And so that means that every time you're doing something I care about, your head's moving. And so you're getting a head motion effect that you're going to interpret as something interesting, or we'll throw it out. We were fortunate in our case, so what we basically were trying to do was elicit these freezing of gate episodes. And to do that, we had people performing a virtual reality task where they tap uh, foot pedals as they, as they navigate this virtual corridor, and we can do things like make them do a bit of thinking while they walk or walk through a complex environment, and their feet tend to stick down the same way you see in, in the clinic. The fortunate thing for us was that they don't need to move their upper legs at all. They just need to dorsiflex and plantarflex their ankles. And it turns out that if you don't move your, um, your quadriceps and your hamstrings, you don't move your hips, and your head doesn't move. So we, we found through a lot of trial and error that as long as we had people well-trained on how to navigate our task, we got not known head movement, but certainly minimal head movement, ones that we could be, levels that we could be confident that we weren't sort of necessarily uh, throwing in horrible signals. So it's experience. a remarkable thing, like, just on the face of it, that the freezing symptom doesn't require 
anything other than tapping foot pad. Oh, no. And it can, it can happen in hands tapping, it can happen in just one finger tapping. Uh, we talked about before, it can happen in eyelids. And it's, it's a very interesting phenomenon that doesn't... I think, you know, it, it gets called freezing again a lot because that's how neurologists see it. And that's how people actually... Uh, why people go and see a neurologist. Because they're walking along and they can't move. Yeah, but it doesn't require gait necessarily. And, you know, it's still an open question as to whether freezing of gait is different to freezing of finger tapping. And people are trying to answer those questions now. The neuroimaging of the two looks strikingly similar. You see an increase in cortical bulb response with a decrease in striatal uh, bulb response, even if you tap your fingers. I didn't show that in the talk, I'm sorry. So I'm really happy to, uh, to hear you talk about bulb response in the striatum, and even in brainstem. It's not something... We hear about too much. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? That's the hardest part. People cut off the cerebellum as well, and you're like, half the brain. (laughs) So uh, that means that there is, so one of the networks, you talk about these networks as people often talk about networks, and they list them by, both by where in the brain they are, usually where in the cortex they are, and what kind of thing they think they're doing, like frontal cognitive or something like that, and that, uh, that sort of stuff. I, just, uh, I, I don't want to uh, quibble about how they're named. <laughs> but uh, they're certainly laden terms often. They, I agree. Yeah, they could be named by initials. HBC would be a good name. <laughs> the, but, um, uh, but there's a striatal one. Is that right? There's a basal ganglia. It depends how you carve yeah. things up. So the, the tricky thing about things like we're talking about independent component analysis here where you, you take a signal in the brain, uh, you, t- you measure lots of different little voxels, and you see how the brain would sort of carve out its little space. So in this case, you don't need a seed. No, in this case, the brain is basically decomposed into the most independent bits that it can in space and time. The trick is, though, that if you ask your algorithm to find 20, it'll find 20. If you ask it to find 50, it'll find 50. That always happens. So 100 and 100. Component analysis. Yeah, most clustering techniques really do need to, you know, have some user input. And you can do things like cross-validation and, you know, there's, across subjects, there seems to be a couple peaks where, you know, there's a lot of consistent architecture and then other peaks where there's really not so consistent architecture. Um, The study that we did that you're referring to, we we looked at one of those consistent peaks, which is where you take about 20 components, and there's one component that hits both striatum, um, part of the orbital frontal cortex and the rest of the striatum and maybe part of the anterior thalamus. And so we took that as our best guess for what was happening with striatum, but it's certainly not a trivial exercise trying to work out exactly what these units do, what they represent in terms of behavior. I just um, want to ask how many of them there are, and you've already said there's many of them as I let the analysis give me. But normally when we do this kind of analysis, we say, well, there was one that was... 40% of the variance, and then there was another one that was 20, and there was another one that was 10, and I could get 85% of the variance in the first 10 components or something. Can you say something like that about the components? Yeah. The mathematics are uh, be a bit beyond me. I know you can with things like principal component analysis, but I'm not too sure with independent component analysis. Do you guys use it at all? Is that the critical difference between the two? Well, you probably can get something like that. A principal component analysis is based on a decomposer. Uh, decomposition of the variance. So it comes, each thing you grab a certain fraction of the variance and it's done to get an independent fraction of the variance. So if you add all those numbers up, then you I get total variance. Ones may not be independent enough. So independent, so independent, that's the whole, the point of independent components is they're not just, uh, they're trying to be independent rather than just decorrelated, right? So actually usually take out the correlations 
because the second order correlations, you, you don't want them to dominate. So you actually get rid of the variance and you're looking at the stuff on top of the variance because usually you have these large events. Like most kind of biological neural signals have a long tail. You have, they're very sparse. You have a few big events and then a lot of the times when not much happens. Well, that's good because you can tell that thing happens and there's only a few things happening at a time. And so the math is all picking out kind of these tails, and they don't have to be orthogonal uh, like they do in the second order thing. So you probably could say about how much of the variance you could reconstruct, because at the end it's a linear reconstruction, and you can look at that. But uh, so I don't know. I don't know enough about how those numbers would add up. So we don't know how how many uh, of these like, larger than individual brain region conglomerates we need to. Explain what's happening in that bolt signal in the brain at any one moment. No, so you know one of the approaches is trying, usually trying to sort of vary that parameter amount and see how much variance you see in your output. And you know um, one of the things that we we don't, I don't tend to use independent component analysis too much. We did for that experiment um, because we thought it made sense to try and let the brain signals do what they did without us defining a given region. Um, but we generally tend to move to a, a different approach now, which is to to try and parcelate the brain up into some way that we think is meaningful. That could either be anatomical regions. That makes some sense with things like striatum and thalamus, where we sort of think we know where some boundaries are. Cortex gets a little trickier. Um, one of the nice ways that people are doing it now is they, they collect for each voxel in the brain, or if you're looking at a brain surface, you can take each sort of edge within a big complex surface space. And you can see how different its connectivity is from its surrounding neighbors. And if you plot the difference between two neighbors across the whole brain, what you effectively see is there's big drop-off points. So there'll be a little patch where all the cortical areas are doing something similar to one another, and all of a sudden there's a huge drop-off, and then there's another patch where they're doing something similar to each other. That's a good thing. It's a boundary. Yeah, and so it's, it's, a, it's a boundary defined by the signal that we're using. So you know potentially that has some meaning in some space. So what we do is we carve the brain up that way, and we try and see how those things are changing together over time. We haven't applied that to the Parkinson's uh, questions yet. This is more in sort of healthy, sort of young undergraduates. But um, I think we can at least sort of come back then to a, a sort of a, a ground space where we can start discussing what it might mean uh, for those things to be interacting. So in freezing, there was sorry, in, in freezing there was a disconnect between the cortex and the striatum. Yeah. From a you know anatomist's point of view. Uh, the cortex and the striatum are forever connected together. Yeah. And, that, and so how, how could it be, you know, that what does it mean when we see a disconnect like that? What should, how should we go about trying to decipher that? I mean, I understand I'm putting it all on you. It's not... Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I think this is a, a really great thing to be thinking about is how could, you know, what could the signals that we see, these sort of... Um, emergent properties that we can see at the whole brain level actually map onto, you know, neurons connect, communicating with neurons. I mean, I guess the way we always thought about it was the striatum is unable to uh, communicate effectively with the cortex, so the cortex is sending a message that the striatum is not willing to receive um, due to some incapacity. Uh, but, you know, the, we've never really taken it too much farther simply because that's the level of explanation that, that we had and that generated new hypotheses. But if that's an impossibility, then it would be good to know if those things occur or not in, in, in sort of... In, uh, I certainly can't terms. declare anything to be an impossible. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, the, the disconnection that you're talking about is a functional correla correlation, right? It's, yeah. it's like they're not, they're not synchronized anymore. 
but uh, or at least in your time scale, they're not synchronized yeah. anymore. Um, uh, if you were to look at something more structural, like using a DTI measure, uh, diffusion tensor imaging, to look at the, the actual physical connections, would you expect there to be weaker physical connections? So some people have done this. Um, I can't quote the exact study off the top of my head, but um, there's a group in Belgium that have done some interesting work here. And from memory, the and there's also a group in Oregon uh, that have done some stuff as well. It doesn't seem to be the connection between the cortex and the striatum that's impaired. It's the connection between the cortex and the subthalamic nucleus, and also I think the pedunculate pontine nucleus as well. Uh, but those connections are impaired and have a relationship to freezing. One of the limitations of many of these studies is that we just don't have a high enough number of subjects yet. And so we're looking at, you know, 10, 12 subjects, maybe 14 subjects that have had, you know, the appropriate head motion profile to actually allow us to ask the question. And that is really not powered enough to say this is a definitive answer. Um, and so I think we're, you know, we're moving towards trying to collect more data in Sydney. With, you know, we're, we're sort of trying to start asking those more sort of white matter questions now. Um, but uh, there's no real definitive answer. One of the cool, really general things that come out of this kind of work is that there's always some correlations going on in some parts of the brain. So even when you're, you don't have your subject doing anything at all, there's something happening, which you call like resting or default state or something like that, yeah. which means I, they're, I'm not, they're not doing yeah. anything I told them to do, and so I, I just call that resting or default. But even when people are asleep, the brain is, is constantly uh, correlating with itself and doing things. Um, and we see patterns that last over a long period of time that would allow us to say, well, this is a, these are groups of neurons that are always correlated to some degree. There's some kind of permanent functional alliance. Yeah, it's a really good question. So there are, I can think of two studies that kind of speak to that. Um, one is... Uh, a plug for my current boss. So Russ is, uh, we're currently analyzing some data he collected over the last couple of years where he effectively uh, uh, self-experimented. He put himself in the scanner two or three times a week for a year and a half. And he wanted to ask the question, how do these brain networks change their allegiance over time? Did he have IRB approval? <laughs> he did. He actually didn't need it, apparently, because uh -huh. he experimented on himself. Um, but he couldn't get IRB approval to do it on anyone else. Uh -huh. It would have been coercive. Um, but effectively, the story seems to be that the brain networks don't change a huge amount. Um, there are some uh, changes. There seem to be sort of states that the brain can be in, sort of session to session. And this is all stuff we're currently working on to try to understand that seem to have constraints on how different brain regions can talk together and communicate. Uh, but the, the overall story is that if you're in a network with one region, you're probably going to be in that the same network with that region at a, t a point in the future. So at least there's a hope that we could define K major networks in the brain, and then those become kind of the basis function set for all of the brain's functional. I think, I think that's the hope, and, and you know, it's, it's an interesting relationship between the pathology we see in sort of major neurodegenerative disorders and these different networks. So, for example, something like Alzheimer's disease, you tend to see pathology that's almost completely constrained to the default mode network, which is this uh, one of the first networks that was described. It's medial prefrontal, hippocampus, posterior cingulate, some other parietal regions. Um, if you look at something like uh, frontotemporal dementia, that's also in sort of this sort of unsinate fasciculus within the default regions. You know, Parkinson's, we're looking at these sort of more frontostriatal networks. So the, I think the hope is that we can kind of bring a lot of those pathologies to bear on some of these questions of how to best cut up the brain 
because we know that the pathologies are associated with very specific behavioral output, uh, outcomes that we can differentiate. Um, but it gets tricky. <laughs> yes, I, it's one, it one of the difficulties the, with the way we're talking, we're talking about functional networks that go up and down together, and we're talking about like it's only in the brain. What it's, you're testing it in some kind of behavior, right? So some behavioral state. And there may be different distinctions happening on what behaviors you use. So you can't just find the ones in the brain and then see what happens. Or maybe you can, but you have to test all the range of behaviors that would split the different networks in what you're talking about. So it's not just networks like in the brain, like in the, because they're functional networks, right? Yeah. They're not networks. Only the brain has to exist in the world. What's that? <laughs> the brain has to exist in the whole world. It's part of the world. Yeah, but it, the, you have to the, you have to test all the things that the brain would be doing conceptually to get all the networks that would really, have to do it. Because there really may be parts of your brain. I mean, there may be that ninety percent of the brain that you don't you ever use. Oh, never. <laughs> <laughs> I think you I think you I think you've hit the nail on the head conceptually perfectly. You know, one of the hopes is that we can just have people lying down on a scanner and. You know, one of the benefits of doing that is that you don't have to measure everything, you just measure nothing. And then you hope you can compare across and just assume the individual differences in what they were thinking about uh, are just going to wash away. That's the hope, right? The other angle of trying to measure everything in the world, think of all the things that we can do. How do you bring them on in a stuffy, boring psychology experiment? You can't do ballroom dancing in an you know, MRI well, scanner. Somebody try. And, yeah. <laughs> and, look, Brown, remember Steve? Well, and there's this fascinating work uh, Uri Asson at Yale has been doing where they actually get two people in the scanner at the same time having a communication over video link, and they can actually like use the activity from one person's brain to re recreate the same network in the other person's brain when they were communicating, but not when they weren't. So there's some interesting links in activity and connectivity between people during communication, and I think it is fascinating. Um, but being able to describe the functional landscape, uh, that's, that would be beautiful. I would love to know all of those things. Um, but I'm worried that that would take a bunch of lifetimes. But. And as we move into the brainstem to include them, because the cortex normally works in conjunction with the brainstem, we think, but yeah. we've never really seen what the brainstem is doing in any of these. So that I think that, that's partly a, a methodological problem, right? Because yeah. you have to limit the amount of brain you can actually record from, and so if you're interested in cortex, especially upper core upper part, the more... Do you have to limit the amount of brain It's got to do with how quickly you can get through the brain and get a slice of every part of the brain. So it's a, it's a signal-to-noise issue. So, so if you, you want high signal-to-noise in the cortex, just focus on the cortex and oh, get through it quickly. You can only look at one part, so it's a little bit like a brain link for a camera. You mm -hmm. see the number of photons that are actually falling on that. And the imaging surface. Surface. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the imaging techniques uh, and technology is getting better and better so that we can now get full coverage. And as I talked about in the lecture, the, there, are still, there are people that are now starting to ask questions about the spinal cord and how the activity in the spinal cord changes with respect to cerebellum and striatum and cortex. And I think, you know, to understand how all this stuff works, we really are going to have to ask about the whole brain. And probably the environment too and across a different range. And so I think, you know, it's, it's a really interesting time to be part of all this because we're starting to really think in sort of big picture um, terms. But I really, I think the key thing for us is going to be to try and work out how to then keep the communication going with people that are down, kind of, you know, right in the cells, working out how they fire and oscillate together. I think that's a really important bridge. But you start talking about whole brain things, and you have to really include the whole brain. So cellular physiologists have always gotten away with saying, well, I'm only interested in this little piece of cortex, so I cut this piece of cortex out and keep it alive in a dish and study it, but then they never make claims about 
large scale patterns of activity in their in their in, in their preparation. But once you start talking about that, you can't just restrict yourself to the cortex because the cortex doesn't work alone. It's got to at least the thalamus has to be part of the picture. Yeah. And one question, bringing it back to the Parkinson's patients, um, you were mentioning that you you can see this freezing with different stimulation, but one of the things that triggers it is cognitive overload in the sense of like multitasking or um, so there's just this literature in in my field in bilingualism okay. where uh, there's this argument that bilinguals ha are better at engaging this striatal uh, um, cortical network um, for doing things like multitasking and okay. paying attention to certain things and not others because bilinguals do it every day with their two languages and I was just wondering if that every time I hear something of, the, of what you're talking things that you're talking about I think okay well then that should mean that there should be less bilinguals with Parkinson's <laughs> than monolinguals I was wondering well, if there's any evidence of that or, or if people with bilingualism got Parkinson's maybe they wouldn't get freezing uh -huh, you know, or freezing, uh, was freezing in a bilingual yeah. population uh, it's an interesting question that I haven't, I haven't asked <laughs> one of the things that but we have will, right? yeah, <laughs> one of the things we have been thinking about a little bit is whether or not the different subtypes could be explained by some predisposition based on expertise in an area or um, uh, you know the way that you learn to do some skill is either a little bit more tenuous or is actually really really reinforced and that might predispose you a certain symptom. Uh, I think that's probably more clear in other work I've done with things like visual hallucinations so that's where people sort of see something in the environment that's not real. They sort of they put it there and they've um, they've imagined the world the way that they expect it to be, rather than the way it actually is. And you can imagine a story there where people that looked at faces the whole time might see faces hidden in the clouds, or people that looked at trucks the whole time would see faces the trucks in the clouds. Where you didn't that's called I think pareidolia, where you sort of see the thing you expect to see in the environment. So I think that that kind of story of you know, the way that the brain is actually wired up experientially might actually impact the manifestation of a symptom if you're unlucky enough to get Parkinson's. Really does, you know, it makes sense. Um, we haven't tested it, but um, it fits. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank you very much, Matt. Well, thanks, guys. That's great. And this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Mm -hmm.